This audio is from South Fellowship Church. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit southfellowship.org. Oh, would you pray with me? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, as we open your scriptures, we do pray, as, as we've sung already, that you would invite us into the arms of Jesus, your living word. Spirit, stir in us a desire not only to hear, but to obey, to respond, and to walk with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. A number of years ago, I was a youth pastor at a church out in Aurora that was positioned uh, quite well for student ministry. It was right across the street from a high school. And um, so we started, after a a number of um, months there, we started an outreach, a pizza lunch outreach to the high school right across the street from the church that I worked at. Uh, It was interesting. We went there and we spread the word. We had students who went there, spread the word with us, had no idea what type of response to expect. And so I was looking out the window as their classes got out and they released for lunchtime, and I saw what looked to be just waves of high school students running across the parking lot. Turns out, free pizza uh, on a flyer produces quite the turnout. So um, I looked at the people who were helping me, one of them being my mom and another volunteer. I looked at them and I yelled, order more pizza! Okay, Because there's nothing like promoting free pizza to a bunch of high school students and not delivering. We would have had a riot. On our hands. So we ordered more pizza, more pizza comes in, and over the course of the next few months, this outreach, this pizza lunch outreach, where we give free pizza and, and we would share the message of the gospel with people, started to grow. And uh, soon we had a few hundred high school students packing into our youth room uh, on given lunch periods, just hearing about Jesus and eating free pizza. But it created quite the problem keeping all this pizza warm. And so, um, one of my aforementioned volunteers who happened to be related to me um, packed what I would have said if she asked me was a few too many pizza boxes into the oven upstairs at the church. Now, the church always needed a new kitchen, okay? Um, we just helped them get one with some insurance money. And so, well, in the middle of the lunch, you hear uh, the fire alarms start going and the kids scatter. And we're like, it didn't work that way in Jesus' ministry, right? And so, I mean, uh, the fire truck comes, we got a new kitchen. And what we did was in that oven, we created the tinderbox. We created the perfect environment for a fire. Cardboard pizza boxes right next to a hot oven element. Now, if you're taking notes, just write, don't ever do that, okay? Don't ever do that. You're welcome. Praise be to God. Let's go home. I think in a spiritual sense, the city of Ephesus that we're going to dive into in Acts chapter 19 finds itself in the same position. They're a a tinderbox waiting to explode. And here's what God's going to do in this chapter. And as we study, my prayer is that he does it in our hearts as well. Here's what he's going to do. He's going to light a match and he's going to flick it on this city of Ephesus. And what you're going to see is just a beautiful gospel, Jesus-centered explosion in the city of Ephesus. Now, my hope and my prayer throughout our whole study of the book of Acts has been, Lord, would you move in our church? Would you move in our lives? 
in the same way that you did through the early church. And I've got to be honest with you, my prayer this morning is the same thing. My cards are on the table. As we read this, this whole week, my prayer has been, Jesus, do the same thing in this church. Do the same thing in your body that you did here. Let's read together. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. If you were with us last week, you'll remember um, that the Holy Spirit descends on these 12 disciples, these believers at Ephesus. Uh, There's miraculous signs, there's wonders, and there's Paul who grabs the microphone and starts to, in light of the Spirit's dissension, tell people about the kingdom of God. So you directly have to tie, you have to directly tie, if you're following Paul and his ministry, to spirit's dissension, kingdom reality, okay? And now what we're going to see in our study of Acts chapter 19 is, what does it look like when the kingdom starts to break forth? Great question. Verse 11, here we go. It says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, immediately we have attention on our hands, yes? Who's doing it? <laughs> well, Clearly God, but he's using Paul as his instrument. Paul abiding and being obedient, walking with Jesus, and God says, my spirit's on you, my power's on you, I'm going to use you for great and miraculous things. Verse 12. So that even the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Sounds like a pretty normal Tuesday for you, huh? I mean, but the kingdom is breaking forth. The even he, he blows his nose and people are healed. Okay? He sheds a layer because the wind kicks up. Somebody grabs a coat, runs off with it. He's like, where'd my coat go? And the lame walk. Verse 13. And some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Now, just another quick time out. Sort of shows you the, the spiritual climate of Ephesus. There's a market for an itinerant exorcist traveling around. You got a problem with the demon? I can drive that bad boy out, okay? There's a market for this. There's people who are engaging in this. This is their livelihood. Undertook, uh, verse, verse 13, some Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them. Now, just a side note. You never want to hear this from an evil spirit, okay? If you're taking notes, just write, I never want to hear this. Here's Here's what the spirit says. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, you may have been a part of some altercations, fights in your day. Uh, You may have seen some, and some of those are debatable as to who won, okay? I got in a few blows there. He got, he got a few blows in too, but, but I feel like I won. Or let's go to the cards. Let's, let's see. It's, oh, it's a draw. Now, here's the deal. If you walk into a fight wearing clothes and you walk out naked, you lost. Okay? You lost. You don't need to go to the cards. No draw. No, no that. If you walk in clothed and out naked, you lost. And you can't go to your friends and be like, I got a few good blows in. Bro, wear your drawers. Okay? 
You lost. You're done. You, you lost. And verse 17 is a kicker. It's phenomenal. It's crazy. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Yes. So this guy's, these seven guys' buddies are like, did you hear what happened to Billy and his brothers? No, what happened? Walked into a fight, closed, got up by a demon. They stripped him. He walked out naked. And they're like, no way. No way that happened. Now, what follows is even crazier. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. It was lifted high. It was mightily praised. How's that for an evangelistic outreach? Let's take on some demons. Let's get beat up, stripped naked. Let's spread the word. People will bow to Jesus. (laughs) Now, Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. God uses all sorts of methods to draw people to himself. And I think what they recognize, because I'm wrestling with this, I'm going, I don't, that, does that fit with the narrative? Like, why in the world people bow at the throne of Jesus because they see the power that the enemy has? Yes, yeah, that's what happened. They go, well, if, if the demons have that kind of power and they're real, then what does it look like to embrace and walk in the power that Jesus has? And what started off with a group of 12 disciples that we read about in the first part of Acts chapter 19 starts to just mushroom up. It starts to explode. People are getting healed. Demons are being confronted. Freedom is starting to be the reality for people to walk in. And here's what we see, is that God is stirring his people to this internal transformation that changes the inner workings of their soul. And he's creating through that external impact that radically, drastically changes the city of Ephesus. We have a number of people in this church who pray regularly for revival, to to see God do something amazing, miraculous, to see him heal a city, to see homelessness wiped out, to see people turn to Jesus, to see some of the wickedness that the people in our city are a part of, for them to repent and turn to Jesus. And, and, and here's what you're going to read in Acts chapter 19. The best, second to none, New Testament description of what corporate revival looks like. Here's where it starts, though. It starts with the people who understand they have the Spirit, who relate to the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, see the presence and power of the Spirit through their lives, and they follow him. That's how it starts. That's how it starts. The best description of revival in the New Testament. And so here's what I want to do. I want to unpack some of the DNA of what this looked like in the city of Ephesus with the admitted prayer. God, Would you let your spirit fall in such a way that you do something similar in our day, in our time, in our midst, through this body? The story goes on. Dr. Luke records, so so as people that didn't know Jesus turned to him because some guy got beat up and stripped naked, it says, verse 18, also, many of those who were believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who'd practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came out to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. Notice, this is believers. 
As believers who are confronted with this reality, we know, we know Jesus, we've been um, walking with Jesus to a certain extent, and the way that God moves and the way that God stirs in their midst, they go, there's some things that we're doing, there's some things we're believing, there's some things that we're walking in that don't honor this King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And they bring those things to the table, and they burn the books, and here's what, here's what they do. They bow their thrones at the heart of the Father. That's what they do. So here's, a, if, you, if you want to follow along, we, we have a word for this. It's called repentance. A word that got has gotten a really, really bad rap. Like people yell it on the streets without any context behind, well, what does that actually mean? Here's what, here's what it means. To these believers, because it's believers who are repenting in this passage, it's an invitation home. The welcome mat of the Father is out. Make no mistake about it, and I want to say this as clearly as I possibly can. The gospel demands. Doesn't, doesn't ask, doesn't say, hey, if you want to, the gospel demands genuine, authentic repentance that leads to practical, natural change in our life. Because repentance is simply a, a changing of mind or thought that leads to a change in direction. So the scriptures will continually say, repent and what? Believe. Not repent and behave. Not repent and behave. So if our behavior hasn't changed, if our actions haven't changed, it's not that we need to try harder, it's that we really do need to repent to change our mind and our thinking in a way that eventually changes our actions. That's what the gospel demands. And that's what this group of followers of Jesus do. Uh, I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. This is a lengthy quote, but I think it's worth our time this morning. And here's what he writes. He writes, It is important to consider how the gospel affects and transforms the act of repentance. In religion, quote-unquote, the purpose of repentance is basically to keep God happy so that he will continue to bless you in your prayers. Okay? Um, essentially, it's, um, God, I know I've screwed up, and I know I've messed up, so I'm going to say X number of these prayers, and I'm going to do these actions, and I'm going to give this money, and if I do that, God, well, then will you be happy with me? Will you be pleased with me? Can we come back into right relationship after I jump through these hoops? This means, Keller writes, that religious repentance is three things. It's selfish it's self-righteous, and it's bitter all the way to the bottom. But he writes in the gospel, the purpose of repentance is to repeatedly, this is beautiful, catch it, repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ in order to weaken our need to do anything contrary to God's heart. It's a minute-by-minute invitation from the Father, come home, come home. You're drifting, your, your heart's drifting, your affection is drifting. Come home. And that's exactly what the believers in Ephesus do. Will you look up at me for just a second? Changing the altar that you bow at of your life always alters, changes your life. Changing the altar of your life alters your life every time because where we bow determines how we live. 
No caveats, no footnotes, no, well, not me. Uh, 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 All of us across the board. So here's what the believers do. In a very public act, they go and they get their books and they go and they get their idols and they burn them and they smash them. And here's the picture you need to see in your mind. Here's what they do is they bow afresh at the throne of Jesus. They identify we've strayed. We've walked away. We're, We're not following you. Our, our words may say that we are, but our actions, they, they, don't, they don't look like it. And this is a beautiful picture because they, don't, they not only do it publicly, but they do it completely. Like they're not going to go back through the rubble and go, I need to get that book back. They burn it. They cut ties with it and they walk the opposite direction. I can remember when my brother first started to follow Jesus. He had this um, he was a big Green Day fan. And he had this sort of like ritualistic burning of Green Day CDs in the backyard. <laughs> and we're like, yeah! Oh. Anybody else been a part of like a, a music or book burning thing? Yeah. And so it was this picture of we are cutting ties with who we were. And we're walking into who we are. And who we are, people who are loved by the Father. Who we are people who are loved by the Father. I think it begs us to ask the same question. What are some of the things that we're holding on to even as we follow Jesus, where we go, yes, it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus our family. It's Jesus plus our bank account. It's Jesus plus our resume. It's Jesus plus. That's where we find life. That's where we find hope. That's where we find meaning. Want to try to sort of an exercise as to, fi- to figure out what those things are in your life? What are the things you're willing to lie about in order to preserve? Those are our idols. And this beautiful movement of God starts with the descending of the Spirit. And in the life of believers, they have this mirror that's held up. And then they go, listen, we've talked a good game, but we haven't walked the walk. And although we say we're following Jesus, really our cupboards are still full of books and idols, and we watch things and we participate in things that don't honor and lift high the name of Jesus. And at Ephesus, here's what they say, we're done with those. We're done. And we're walking the other way. Well, that has huge implications for the culture around them. It crashes the economy, okay? Verse 20. Here's, we're going to jump back in. Verse 20 of chapter 19. So, as if to say because or The fact that they repented and turned to Jesus and were embraced by the Father, the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. Verse 23, Paul explains a few of his travel plans in verses 21 and 22. So we'll skip down to 23. At that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. He, he was uh, the go-between, between people who wanted to um, order an idol and the people that actually produce the idol. He's a middleman, but he does a pretty good business, makes a pretty good living, uh, and he sees that starting to slip away. Verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. 
And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying, the gods made with human hands are not gods. His argument is pretty simple. If you made it in your backyard, you shouldn't bow down and worship it. And they're going, what? What did you say? Verse 27, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. Interesting. But here's what you see. A genuine, spirit-driven repentance bowing at the throne of the Father, saying, we've worshipped these things, but now we're going to worship Jesus alone, has these massive ripple effects into the culture that they live in. Genuine repentance doesn't just change the people who enter into it. It does that, but it also leads to the citywide corporate revival. Citywide corporate revival. The progression is the church repents. People are redeemed and saved by the gracious hand of God because of the way that the church rubs up against them. Then decisions are made where people start to change and eventually a culture is transformed. Well, how does this happen? Uh, Dr. Luke gives us a, a little bit of a hint in this passage. He tells us that the church at that time isn't called the church. They're called something different. Here's what they're called. The way. Verse 9. They're referred to again as the way in verse 23. So this isn't a pretty church. This isn't a church that has all of their theology totally in line and their programs laid out. They are the way. People who simply together in community follow the way of Jesus. Not a religion, but a but a way, it's very, very different. It was a way of, if you go back to the book of Ephesians that Paul writes back to this church at Ephesus years later, it's a way of speaking differently. It's a way of working differently. It's a way of loving your spouse differently. It's a way of dealing with our anger differently. It's a way, not a religion. One might summarize and say it was the way of both giving and receiving the love of the Father and remaining in that place and returning to that place when they deviated and when they left. See, friends, when the church gets serious about Jesus, not about playing church and not about having a pretty, perfect church, but when the church gets serious about Jesus, when we start to embrace the way the city is changed, people are redeemed, the gospel goes forward, there's always ripple effects to a genuine repentance where we walk back under the goodness and grace of the gospel and receive it as our own. That's what this church does. That's what this church does. And there's ripple effects to that. It overflows into marriages. It overflows into workplaces. It overflows into neighborhoods. It overflows into relationships. It overflows into lives. We have a lot of sort of 
problems, symptoms that we address and that we stir up and that we, in, in good conscience and in good faith, try to move forward with. But the root of it all is that we don't know and live in the goodness and love of the Father. That only happens as we repent. That only happens as we repent. And that repentance has huge ripple effects. It was interesting to me. If you jump down to verse 37 and you see uh, the way that, uh, verse 37, and you see the way that as Paul and his friends are put on trial, that the crowd starts to speak about them. The people who put them on trial, here's what they say. You have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious, really interesting what follows, nor blasphemers of our goddess. Fascinating. So, so here's what they can say. With all honesty, and believe me, they would say otherwise if it were true. What they say about Paul and what they say about his friends is they haven't said a word about Artemis. This Greek goddess who uh, had a temple where a thousand temple prostitutes worshipped by day and performed their duties by night, where people came, as they say in this text, from all over the world in order to worship. It's one of the seven ancient wonders uh, of the ancient world. And what they say is Paul hasn't said a word about her. Are you kidding me? Well, how does revival start? Does it, isn't it? We create and we gather a bunch of evidence that demands a verdict? And isn't that what we're called to do? I mean, no offense to that book, fine book. And see, here's what you see. There's, there's undertones of this. It's not on the surface of the passage, but as you read about it, and here's what Paul's message was. He was lifting high the name of Jesus. And he wasn't about, you go back and read the uh, letter he writes back to Ephesus, no mention of Artemis. None. But he will address sexuality. He will address how to, in, in a godly manner, for husbands to love their wives and for lives to, wives to love their husbands. He's going to address the issues, but he's not going to address her. And here's why. Because you never change culture by trying to change culture. And friends, under Christendom, we have bought this method hook, line, and sinker. You change culture by creating a better one. That's the way you change culture, by creating a better one. <laughs> um, so I've, I've, I've seen floating around on the internet um, like 1,300 blogs about Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, I'm not promoting the movie uh, in any way, shape, or form, but what I do want to point out is um, if Paul were to write a letter back to the city of Ephesus and he doesn't mention Artemis or Artemis worship explicitly, maybe we should rethink our methods. Maybe. I'm just going to throw it out there because here's what we do. The more blogs we write, the more blogs we read, the more blogs we share, free promotion, and when we're talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, we're implicitly not talking about the beauty of Jesus and the glory of Christ. 
And that's the way those types of things start to lose their hold. It's not by Christians writing blogs and saying, this is wrong, this is evil, this is bad. It's by followers of Jesus living out the sexual ethic that the scriptures teach us, where there's beauty and intimacy, which is what that movie is longing for and hoping for. They're never going to get there that way, but that's just a side note. It's the intimacy we show the world, put that on display, what it looks like when it's Christ-centered, gospel-exalting, and the ripple effects of that change, I can tell you, a blog's not going to change anyone's mind. Just not. Just not. See, revival doesn't begin by attacking a culture. It begins by creating a better one, and we create a better one as we surrender and walk in the love of the Father. Woo! Fired up. Fired up. So here's what happens as the word of God um, starts to expand, both in the world and in the hearts of his followers. It always meets opposition. It always does. So, so here's the way we see that play out. Verse 28. And when they, this is the crowd that Demetrius has gathered, and when they heard this, they were enraged, crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Now, these are good friends. They say, you're going to get your head beat in, bro. You don't wear a cape. Stay on the outskirts. Let us fight this battle. And some, even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent him, uh, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in what? Confusion. Confusion. And most of them did not know why they'd come together. That's it's hilarious, isn't it? I mean, they're just, they're all there going, we're pumped up. Why? I have no idea why, but we are indeed fired up. Okay, um, and it goes on to say, they did not know why they had come together. So, so it's like this conversation goes on in the crowd. Hey, why are you here? I have no idea. But this is awesome, is it not? It is awesome. Let's shout some more, right? And it just, the crowd feeds off of itself. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander of the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hand, wanting to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two and a half hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And here's what you see. Here's what you see. Is that the Spirit prompts this repentance bowing at the throne of Jesus that leads to a revival both in the souls and lives of the believers and in the city. There's always ripple effects to repentance that eventually leads to riots. Now, here's the thing. You, could, you can step back from this story, this account, and go, we, we get why that happened. The rug is pulled out from the proverb, under the proverbial feet of the Ephesians. Their economy is crashing before their eyes. If people don't travel from all over the world to worship Artemis, where's their next meal going to come from? How are they going to feed their family? These are all questions that people are asking because their whole entire city is built on that economy. It's a great question, isn't it? 
I mean, you could understand why a riot would form around that. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, friends. Will you look up at me for just a second? It's not only externally that this is a reality. Anytime we put our faith in Jesus, we step off of whatever foundation we built our life on and step onto him, there's always an internal turning or riot, if you want to call it that, that takes place. It's, I'm leaving those things behind, and now I'm walking with Jesus, and the question is, who am I? I built my life on these things, and now, now I'm going to not cling to them as my God. Who, who am I now? It's a shaky ground. It's a shaky ground. And unfortunately, what we've told people is turn to Jesus, and your life is going to just get better. <laughs> you just have to ignore the Bible in order to believe that, okay? Now, will he, does he redeem? Does he show his love? Is he good? Yes, yes, yes. But sometimes you get beat up. Sometimes you find yourself in jail. Sometimes you find yourself on a cross and you're crucified. Depending on how you measure better, that might not fit. So here's what the reality is. As we turn to Jesus and he stirs revival in our souls and awakening in our neighborhoods and our families and in our, you name it, wherever we find ourselves in our workplace, we should expect that riots follow. That an uneasiness even just in our soul because a new object or intensity of our worship or revival creates an internal and external opposition. Always does. Which is why we teach classes on like, how to study the Bible because riots, storms are coming and sometimes just reading the Bible on a Sunday morning isn't going to get the job done, friend. It's just not. So our goal is to teach you how throughout the week to, to feed yourself, to feast on the banquet that's in front of you. Not just to come and to hear a message, but to come and to hear from Jesus one and then to be able to do that weekly because the enemy, he's going to push back. What does he push back with? Fear? Fear? Am I going to be able to feed my family? Am I going to be able to uh, create an identity only on Jesus? If I let go of everything else like the Ephesian church did, is he going to let me down? Is he going to come through? Confusion? What, is, what does this really actually look like to follow the way of Jesus? See, when worship of the living true God confronts our idols, which it always does if it's genuine worship, and crushes our idols, it implicitly means that we're transferring where we stand onto the gospel and onto Jesus, and that can feel like shaky ground if we're just learning how to do that. So this church, they, they wrestle through that. They fight to believe the goodness of God. And the crowd is dismissed because they're part of a Roman colony and that kind of thing just isn't acceptable, so everybody goes their way. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we could figure out what happened to this church? Because, I mean, what a launch. I mean, you just light the match and fling it on this, and boom, it explodes. Miraculous signs, wonders, people meet Jesus. The church repents. 
The church sees revival. The church endures the riots. They get through to the other side. Wouldn't it be interesting to know what happens? Well, well a few years later, Paul writes a letter back to this church, and he's going to encourage them to keep pushing into Jesus to remain in the love of the Father. But that isn't the end of the story. In fact, if you were to fast forward a few more decades, the book of Revelation is going to address this church. If you have your Bible and you want to turn there, turn to Revelation chapter 2. Here's the way Jesus talks about this church. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Let's skip down to verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Good? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Oh, church in Ephesus, you're you're doing, you are doing good. But you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You've found them to be false. Good? Good work, church at Ephesus. You're staying strong 40 or so years later and you are pushing through. I know you are enduring patiently, which is at the top of God's list. Maybe, okay? And bearing up. For my name's sake, you have not grown weary. You are a good church. You have good theology. You have good programs. You are doing a good work. Yay, 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 church at Ephesus. And I just want to say, I think this is a word for us today. Something happened in between being the way and becoming a church. And that something, whatever it was, led them away from the heart of the Father. And so what he says, but I have this against you. You've left or you've abandoned your first love. You've grown cold. I mean, how, how poignant and powerful is it to study the way it began and then a few decades later to have Jesus write to you and say, you're doing a lot of things well, but you're not doing the most important thing well. You have good theology, you have good programs, you're a clean and you're a polished church, but you've, you've left, you've, you've turned back from your first love. Have you? Have, have you? A lot of people, I, I think their life following Jesus is more akin to a glider than it is to an airplane. They start really high. And they just slowly, slowly, slowly is on the decline. Instead of the airplane where you go, oh, isn't Jesus beautiful? Isn't he good? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he magnificent? And it just feeds on itself. So here's what Jesus says. I love this about the good shepherd, okay? I love this about the good shepherd because he doesn't say to his sheep, well, out of here. You got off to a great start. You were on fire, but now you've turned into ice and I'm out of here. That's not what he says. Here's what he does say. 
remember. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, church at Ephesus, remember what it was like when you went to your cupboards and you got the magic books and, and you got the idols and you burned the books and you smashed the idols and you bowed at my throne and you tasted my goodness and you knew my grace and you walked in my mercy. Remember what that was like, church. And I'll say the same thing to you. Do you remember what it was like? When you first knew him and you went to the scriptures in the morning and it just felt like words were flying off the page. Remember what that was like? Remember what it was like when you met somebody that didn't know Jesus and you just couldn't wait to tell him about how good he is? Not because of some obligation the church laid on you, but just because he was so ridiculously good and his mercies were new that morning? Remember, Jesus says, what it was like when you first met me. Repent, which is ironically what they did at first. Remember when he bowed. Remember when you felt my embrace. Remember. And so he goes, repent. Turn back to me. Run into my arms. And do the things you did at first. So, so here's what he would say. Remember. Follower of Jesus. I pray, would you remember? Find it somewhere in there. What was that like? How, maybe how have you wandered Get around some people who just met Jesus. Might rub off on you. Might be good for you. Be good for us as a church to remember, oh yeah, that's, that's what that's like. Repent, turn back from the way that we've become a church from transitioned out of just being the way. The way. Following the heartbeat of Jesus, living in the way of Christ. Martin Luther, in the very first of the 95 theses he nailed to the Wittenberg door, his first was the whole entire Christian life is one of repentance. Just a daily saying, uh, here's my idols, and I'm walking back to the love of the Father, and I'm bowing around his throne and his throne alone. And finally, Jesus says, those things you did at first, do them again. I had a friend this week who asked me, you know, Ryan, how... How are we supposed to stay on fire for the Lord? How, how are we supposed to sustain this walk? I would answer with Jesus' invitation in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember what it was like when you first met him, friend. Repent. Let go of the things you've built your life on other than him and run back to his throne and bow. Cut the tie with everything else. Bow at his throne. And then do the things you did at first. We're going to have a few moments now because I want to give you a chance to just sit in that with Jesus. Are there areas where you've grown cold? Things in your life, maybe it's anger, maybe it's bitterness, a lack of forgiveness, a pride that you need to repent of. Because really what all it is is you're building a foundation on something other than the living God. Are there things in your life that Jesus might say, I want you to turn from those and I want you to come home. I want you to come home. Look up at me for just a second. How's the church in Ephesus doing today? 
Good luck finding it. And for whatever reason, over the course of time after they received this letter, it just continued to decline. Why? Because the church wasn't willing to say, we need Jesus. And he's going to be our all. And they build it on something else. It sounds like, from Revelation 2, their own fortitude and their own good theology and their own church programs and their own religion. That's what they built it on. And instead of coming home, what they said is, we're unwilling to cut ties with that. We're going to hold on there. And we're going to try to manage Jesus plus. And Jesus goes, I'm not having that. I'm not having that. Friends, this morning... May we be the type of people that say open-handedly, God, we repent, we run home to your embrace and your goodness and your joy. Our worship team is going to come forward. They're going to sing uh, two songs with us. And here's what I want to do. I just want to just claim this space, this sacred space. And so as you sense the Spirit's prompting and leading, I would invite you, respond. It's helpful for me if I respond with my body, not just with my mind and with my voice. And so uh, these steps up here are open, come, kneel, pray. The aisles are open, kneel, pray. But this is a time for us to say, all right, we've just read the Scriptures, but what we want to do more than read the Scriptures is allow the Spirit of God to read us. And so this is your time, communion with the Father who says, I love you, and will you let go and come home? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus. Would you move, Spirit, in our hearts and our lives, and would you allow us to, by your grace, let go of some of the things that we may have built our life on? to run back home. Jesus, I pray over the, over the person, over the people where they go, yeah, that's me. I've, I've just, I've grown cold. <clears throat> I pray, Holy Spirit, would you pour out the love of the Father into our hearts and souls in such a way that you would ignite us once again for your name, for your glory, and for our joy. Would you stand with me, church? Let's worship, let's sing together, but let's allow God to stir in us. Come forward, kneel, pray. Let's repent together and run home to the open arms of our Father. This audio is from South Fellowship Church. Feel free to make copies of this message, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. For more information about South Fellowship, please visit us at southfellowship.org.